0: Welcome everyone. This is a re-recording of Medieval Artistic Styles, The Influences, Part 1, which covers Viking, Romanesque, Byzantine and Gothic art. My apologies for the technical glitch and thanks to one of my uh, loyal listeners for alerting me to the problem. So with no further ado, let's begin. Embroidery especially Opus Anglicanum or English embroidery, was the luxury item in the medieval world and enjoyed more world-recognised prestige than any other artistic style from England throughout the 13th and 14th centuries. It heralded power, authority, wealth and status. People took notice of this stunning new aesthetic. So much so, it was really all about, look at me, look at me. But what actually informed and inspired this mastery of design and technique? Design needs inspiration and technique at this level also needs innovation. And both these were amply satisfied during the medieval period. Let's see if I can explain how and why. Embroidery is and will always be a reflection and mirroring of cultures, fashions and styles. Just look to the many excavated finds throughout the world and you'll see some of the most beautiful and mesmerising treasures from this time. It's no coincidence then that there's a similarity of styles and symbols reinterpreted throughout medieval design and needlecraft. Design is an influencer. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosia world of stitch history art, and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky, and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger, and stitch enthusiast, whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. There's such a blending and intermingling of design influences from a diversity of cultures when it comes to medieval art. And it's this that makes it such a rich and exciting time. It's of its time, but it also recalls the past through innovation of both design and technique that is buoyant, enthusiastic and stunningly beautiful. Whoever termed it the Dark Ages definitely wasn't seeing what I'm seeing. These so-called Dark Ages are a glimpse into an amalgamation of cultures and societies who loved to express themselves freely, using the things that influenced or held power over them, their religion, their rulers, and their myths and legends. It's there for all to see in their architecture, panel paintings, mosaics, illuminated manuscripts, as well as their embroideries. So let's delve into the first four of eight styles that contributed so greatly to form design inspiration for those magnificent medieval embroiderers and their work beginning with Romanesque art from around the 10th to the 12th century. Initially developed in France, it was the first style ever to spread across Europe, symbolizing the growing wealth of European cities and the power of the church. Greatly inspired by Byzantine and insular art, And insular art refers to the anti-classical work produced in post-Roman Britain and Ireland, which had a distinct and innovative style. Think the Book of Kells with its highly stylized and intricate designs. Now, these combined influences forged the highly innovative and coherent style of Romanesque art. The buildings of this time were characterised by their durable and solid construction, incorporating semicircular arches, barrel vaults, and thick stone walls. Interiors were dark and simple, with small windows peppering the tops of walls. The large plain wall surfaces of the Romanesque period lent themselves to some of the most magnificent mural painting ever seen. A stunning example is the painted crypt of San Isidoro at Lyon in Spain. We see the art of this period fused with the artistic heritage of the Roman Empire, the early Christian church and the barbarian culture of northern Europe through mosaic work, painting, sculpture, illuminated manuscripts, frescoes, metalwork, enamels, ivories and stained glass colors were striking but compositions usually lacked depth. Figures varied in size according to their importance and landscape backgrounds were more abstract than realistic. A stunning example of this is the Morganleaf page from the Winchester Bible 1160 to 1175. The trees in the background are very reminiscent to me of the trees worked as story breaks in the Bayeux tapestry, worked around 1076. High quality art was no longer confined to royal courts or a few select monasteries, but expanded to a number of churches in small towns and villages, especially those on the pilgrim routes. The oldest known fragment of medieval pictorial stained glass dates from the 10th century, with the earliest intact stained glass windows dating from the late 11th century. Now, these magnificent mysteries of light must have ignited the passions of numerous pilgrims. And a great example is of the Prophet Daniel from the Augsburg Cathedral dating from the 11th century. The Bayeux Tapestry, that tantalising tale of the Norman conquest of England, is the most famous example of Romanesque embroidery, along with some of the work from Opus Anglicanum or English work. Now, moving on to Viking art. It's vital and vigorous, yet delicate, elegant, and sophisticated. Those Vikings are a mystery. Do any of those words resonate with the image we have of them? The answer would probably be a resounding no. But they do describe quite accurately, as it turns out, this warrior society's art. That this seemingly cruel and bloodthirsty culture could produce art of such moving and emotive beauty is a conundrum. But produce it they did and their surviving artefacts point to work of a very high level of quality and craftsmanship. The magnificent headpost from the Oseberg ship is a prime example. Their art was decorative, applied to the functioning objects of daily life, such as their longboats, horse hardware, jewellery, weapons, tools, and incised onto stones depicting the good deeds of dead men much of their finest art would have been carved into wood, most of which has long since rotted away, but a rare survivor of their skilled and intricate wood carving can be, can be seen at the Ernie's Stave Church in Norway. It's truly breathtaking in its complexity, elegance and skill. Viking art has links to the art of the late Roman Empire, and was based on the many guises of animal forms. Their convoluted and contorted, twisted bodies appear throughout the Viking Age, sometimes devouring either their own body or the one closest to them. These highly stylized, writhing animals often appear chaotic and undisciplined as these ancient artists rejected naturalism in favour of distortion and abstraction although figures do appear in some of their work indicating they were capable of a more naturalistic approach. Abstraction is clearly used from the 8th and 9th centuries, anchored by a distinct level of order and control governed by the five distinct stylistic phases of Oseberg, Boré, Jelinge, Mammon, Ringereich and Ernie's. Having tried to emulate some of their work, I can attest to the intricacy and skill level they must have had. It's not easy, but it's definitely worth the effort. Perseverance is the key. The Sodorala weather vane is a magnificent example of the use of animal forms, abstraction, and writhing serpentine shapes. This style of weather vane would have been attached to the mast of a longboat and the small holes along the curved underside tied with coloured ribbons of some sort making for a wonderful sea-going display Some of these weather vanes were later reused on churches Interestingly some of the incised stone art from the beginning of the Viking age along with the Oseberg tapestry form the closest links to a narrative in Viking art. Stylistically, the Oseberg tapestry is very similar to the Bayeux tapestry. This warrior culture exudes a sense of self-assurance and confidence in their artwork, but there's also a level of flashy ostentatiousness which reflects an intriguing and far more interesting side to their perceived hard-nosed Viking character. With the Vikings, I believe all was not what it appeared. The Byzantine Empire rose from the decline of Rome and lasted until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Its art originated and evolved, incorporating the Christianized Greek culture along with that of the Roman Empire and was based on an attitude that form should be stimulated by meaningful content. It had to have some sort of meaning for them. This new aesthetic was defined by an abstract, almost anti-naturalistic character Where classical art attempted realistic representations, Byzantine art favoured a more symbolic approach, the subject matter being primarily religious and imperial because the wealth was concentrated in those areas. Piety and autocracy were the big winners in art then, and many aspects of the Byzantine culture continued through Eastern European and Mediterranean cultures for centuries afterwards. The influence of Byzantine art can be seen in the art from the middle Age states of Rus, the Republic of Venice, and Orthodox Christians living in the Ottoman Empire, with a number of artistic traditions born in the Byzantine Empire continuing in Greece, Cyprus, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Russia to this day, testament to the longevity and passion for this style of art. This new Byzantine art aesthetic was defined by its anti-naturalistic, abstracted character, yet never truly lost sight of its classical heritage. Byzantine art informed architecture, monumental decoration of church interiors, mosaics, religious icons, illuminated manuscripts both religious and secular, sculpture, carved ivories, enamel work, glass, jewellery, metalwork and beautiful figured silks. This was a period when mosaics bedecked with gold leaf radiated a shimmering divine light depicting symmetrical, repetitive holy figures of godlike spiritual demeanour almost devoid of any emotion or individualism. The reign of Justinian I, five twenty-seven to five sixty-five, saw significant changes in Byzantine art through a massive building program, including the magnificent Hagia Sophia. Medieval artists and patrons attempted to capture the splendor of Byzantine art and its heritage by producing work able to equal it. What better compliment? Gothic art, or French art as it was known then, embodies elegance and sophistication, linking Romanesque art to Renaissance art, mainly through architecture, but also sculpture and the minor arts. This style developed in northern France around the 12th century, flowing through to the 16th century, when it was finally subsumed into Renaissance art. Its architecture is noted for the use of slender pointed arches, beautiful flying buttresses, prestigious stained glass windows exuding a kaleidoscope of light-filled colour, narrow columns, ribbed vaults, all with an emphasis on the vertical, giving a feeling of light and space. Primary media included sculptures of saints and gargoyles, stained glass including rose windows, panel paintings, frescoes and illuminated manuscripts featuring biblical scenes. One of the best examples of a rose window is the North Rose Windows in Chartres Cathedral, Chartres, France. These monumental structures would have dominated the medieval skyline giving the surrounding community a great sense of pride as well as a hub for social and economic exchanges. This exciting period saw the rise of cities and the foundation of universities. Trade guilds formed requiring artists to become members and better record keeping finally gives us the names of some of the artists. Some even began signing their names to their work. Trade increased along with the establishment of a money-based economy. And here is where we see the creation of a bourgeois class patronising the arts and commissioning new artworks. This was a time when secular art finally comes into its own. Noticed artists fr- uh, sorry, noted artists from this time include Giotto, Fra Angelico and Pietro Lorenzetti who all brought more realism and natural humanity to their art. Gothic art sees figures becoming more animated in pose and facial expression, though they tend to be smaller in relation to the background scenes. Illuminated manuscripts represent the most complete record of Gothic painting. The earliest full manuscripts with French Gothic illustrations date to the middle 13th century. The Parisian Psalter of St Louis dating from 1253 to 1270 is a fantastic example using tempera paint and gold leaf. Panel painting was becoming more increasingly in vogue for those who could afford them. Remember painting with oil onto canvas didn't become popular until the 15th and 16th centuries so early paintings were created on a flat panel of wood either singly or joined together. Themes making up the Gothic style include Christian saints using delicate, elongated forms in flowing textiles with complex and decorative backgrounds rich in detail. Biblical stories, flora and fauna, hunting and courtly love, architecture structures, rich colour, metallic gold and silver and geometric patterns also predominated. Some of the most precious examples of medieval art uh, were to be found housed in religious structures. It was a time for the prominent use of valuable material such as gold in religious objects, personal jewellery, clothing closures such as clo- uh, cloak clasps and belt buckles, mosaic backgrounds, or applied as gold leaf in manuscripts and gold, silver or gilt for embroidery. Research into just these four styles certainly gives me a better understanding of the bounty-rich inspiration medieval artists could draw upon. What I found particularly interesting is that three of the four styles I've mentioned here depended on abstraction, distorting themes innovatively, creating something unique and, as it turns out, durable. So much so, there was a Gothic-led revival style in the mid-19th century, inspired by medieval design. It reflected the public's taste for the picturesque and romantic in architecture, which was a departure from the more classical styles of ancient Greece and Rome. This also had huge ramifications for embroidery and those who designed embroideries. Think William and May Morris, among many others, and I'll be working my way up to this in upcoming podcasts. In my next episode, I'll deal with the four remaining styles that informed the medieval aesthetic, and they are Islamic, Celtic, Ottonian and Carolingian. Until then, thanks again for listening. I really hope you're enjoying this journey through history, art and needlework as much as I am. It's such a remarkable time for men and women and especially embroiderers. Till next time. Bye for now.